0: Disputes are inevitable in human relationships, but they can get especially messy in the world of global supply chains. Hi everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. There aren't a whole lot of guides to managing supply chain relationships over the life of a supplier contract, but it's imperative that companies dedicate sufficient legal and executive resources to managing those relationships in order to avoid costly disputes or defend against them when they occur. Now we have that book. It's called Legal Blacksmith, and it's authored by my guests today, Rosemary Coates and Sarah Rathke. Both having guests on the show before... Rosemary is president of Blue Silk Consulting and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, while Sarah is a trial attorney and partner at the international law firm of Squire Patton Boggs. They're going to give us some tips on how to build effective supply chain relationships from the very start, how to communicate better with suppliers, and how to understand the laws that govern that critical area. It's an area to which many top executives don't pay enough attention. So here is my conversation with Rosemary Coates and Sarah Rathke. Sarah Rathke, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. And Rosemary Coates, welcome also.
1: Great, thank you. Good morning.
0: Indeed, I should say welcome back to both of you because you've both been on the show before and I'm happy to have you both back talking about a slightly different subject, your new book called Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. And I guess I would like to ask one of you or both of you, first of all, why that title? Well, where, how'd you come up with it and what exactly does it mean?
1: This is Rosemary. I, I'll chime in, Sarah, and you can you can add color if you'd like. Yeah, we went through a process of trying to determine how to name the book. And we came up with Legal Blacksmith because the image is of forging a piece of chain. And of course, this is about supply chain. So the images and, on the book and so forth, our advertising is all with this. Chain link. And then blacksmith, we felt, denoted hard work, and we're both hard workers, so we, we like that combination.
0: I'd also like to ask what each of you brings to this project. I know that each of you has a different affiliation. Sarah, you are, of course, a trial attorney at the law firm of Squire, Patton Boggs and Rosemary, as we found out in our previous conversation, our, our executive director of Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. But in terms of, like, your expertise and your and your perspective... Talk to me a little bit about what each of you kind of brought to the project.
2: I obviously, as the attorney, I brought the legal perspective um, and the perspective of what it's like for companies who aren't accustomed necessarily to being in court or, or to being involved in legal disputes, what their perspective is once they're there. And I think some of the law that applies to supply chain disputes can be surprising for people who find themselves in supply chain disputes. So I come at it from the legal perspective that gets overlaid on a very operational field. And Rosemary, of course, and I'll let her speak more to this, is the expert on the operational side of supply chain management.
1: Yes. So we actually, when we started writing this, we knew we had two audiences. Sarah is addressing supply chain executives that need to know all the legal ramifications of the things that they're doing. So she's teaching them about the legal consequences and how to avoid disputes. And my audience is attorneys because we need to educate the attorneys that are working on these cases about the processes. So we knew we had kind of two audiences because we work together on legal cases defending clients that are in supply chain disputes.
0: I have to say that before I even begin chapter one in this book, I'm already intimidated because you have a section called Acronyms and Initialisms Used, and you have about two and a half pages of organizations and agencies and bureaucracies, all with their suitable acronym that somehow figure into this whole landscape of, uh, of handling disputes. So I, I think it's a little bit terrifying, the territory that we're venturing into. But let me try to sort some of this out in the short time that we have. I'd like you to speak to what you consider to be some of the major causes of of disputes in the first place within the supply chain, where do the big issues tend to pop up the most?
1: It's a strategic thinking book, and it's, there's an index and a lot of ways to search through things that you're specifically looking at. But these days, senior executives in supply chain are really looking across the broad organizations, starting with how salespeople approach their customers, how you might engineer a product, how that product is then the parts and raw materials are procured, how the product is manufactured, how you improve manufacturing efficiency how you forecast and plan and um, provide for warehousing if need be and logistics and import-export, all those components. So it used to be we looked at these things in little fiefdoms or little uh, vertical subject matter areas. Today's executive is looking much more broadly and, and in an integrated way across the whole organization. So we took that approach, tried to say these are the individual areas But you need to be aware of everything because you can get uh, caught up in all kinds of supply chain issues along the way unless you have that broad view.
0: Well, Sarah, by the time a client comes to you, what are typically some of the reasons for why they got in trouble in the first place?
2: Well, I would say that at a very organic level, one of the root causes is that supplier relationships were impacted by the globalization of trade, and that changed everything radically However, the legal function didn't change as much as it had, as as it should have. And so now folks are getting components and getting materials from far-flung areas of the world where they maybe weren't used to doing that. Now they're dealing with vendors and customers that have different cultural backgrounds and different business norms than they do. And that tends to create more disputes. Meanwhile, the supply chain function traditionally does not receive as much legal attention as other aspects of corporate operations, such as mergers and acquisitions or investor relationships. And so what you have there is a vacuum where not enough executive attention or legal attention is being made to transactions that can really be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And people have a hard time relating to each other sometimes up and down the supply chain. And so that is what I would say would be the root cause of how people end up in my office.
0: And isn't it also a complication of the fact that usually when we're talking about a contract, very often it's party A and party B, but this goes so far beyond that because there's all these multiple tiers of suppliers and providers that also have to be taken into account. So I guess that's a big issue too, right?
2: It often does, and then there's confusion about which jurisdictions laws apply and and how you interpret that. So, yes, supply chain has become a lot more complicated than it was 20 years ago or even 10 years
0: ago. Take us through some of the let, – let's talk about the, the stages of dealing with these contracts and forging, so to speak, these contracts, starting with the pre-contract phase. You split this up into what you call RFX, which, is, which incorporates both requests for information, quotation, and proposal. What are some of the things that companies need to do before they even get started? on writing a contract before they even hire a supplier some important tips as to how to, like, prepare at the beginning so as to avoid problems down the line.
1: I can answer that sort of, and the reason why I say sort of is because we really want to keep bringing the ideas up to a higher level. So when you're dealing with the supplier, you already have been through the design and manufacturing engineering phase, and we really think that you need to start earlier than that. So let's say, for example, a company is producing some part for an aircraft, and the engine requires a special design by the engineering team, and it's going to require special parts, it's going to require a, a long lead time items, and so forth. So way up front in a company's process during that engineering piece is where you need to start thinking about what suppliers are you going to use what long lead items are there? How are you going to forecast and assure that you have raw materials at the right place and the right time? So it's thinking through the whole supply chain process over a period of time and then looking at the individual component parts. So how you might contract with a supplier is related to how you're planning and engineering the products up
0: front. What about the legal side of that, Sarah? What do you think are some of the clauses or considerations that have to be considered right up front?
2: Well, right up front, I think you have to be – companies need to be precise in what they're doing and what they're saying. So I think that one thing that surprises a lot of companies is that statements that they made when they thought that they were just talking to prospective suppliers or to prospective customers become part of the contract, even though they're never memorialized as such. And that's because the law takes – at times, a more expansive view of what promises become contractually binding. And so I think people need to be careful when they're negotiating and when they're exploring a relationship with a supplier or a customer, and then later when they're writing their contract that overlays all those past communications. They have to be careful that they say exactly what they mean and what they intend to be binding and disclaim anything that they don't.
0: And as I think, as you mentioned in the book, they should be selective in the first place as to who they issue these RFXs to from the from the get-go.
2: Yeah, that's
1: right. You have to qualify potential suppliers all along the way and in some cases qualify your customers as well so making sure that you are capable of providing the services you're promising to the customer as well as you are capable of providing a forecast and managing the relationship with your supplier as
0: well. So we get into the drafting of the supply chain contract now, and I guess you could potentially just say, I'm going to put every single eventuality and possibility into this contract, and it's going to be 500 pages. We're going to cover all the bases so that nothing goes wrong. I imagine at some point you you have to like draw back and say there's only so much you can put in writing. But how do you approach the whole drafting of the contract to make sure that you're balancing on one hand covering possible eventualities and things that could go wrong, but the other hand not just creating a new war and peace that no one's going to read and it is, it is kind of over overdoing it.
2: Well, you do want to be thorough, and you do want to cover your bases, but doing that at the contract drafting level and at the contract drafting stage is not a substitute for good communication as the contract is being performed on and administered. And we have some examples of that, too. I mean, I guess you could say that at the end of 2014, Apple had a very comprehensive and very one-sided agreement that it had entered into with its putative supplier of sapphire glass for use in iphone and ipad screens and the company that was supposed to supply that was a new hampshire company called gt advanced and that contract was very comprehensive and it was very heavily weighted in favor of apple and as a result gt advanced ended up declaring bankruptcy and nobody has sapphire screens in their phones or in their ipads anymore so that's the danger of being too heavy-handed and sometimes of being too comprehensive. Communication is a vital part of every supply chain relationship.
1: I would add to that that a lot of supply chain people, or in procurement in particular, think that once you have the contract established and everybody signs and so forth, that the, all you have to do is maybe a quarterly update or an annual review or that sort of thing. But we advocate, both of us, both Sarah and I, advocate that there's got to be a much more integrated approach and a way of communicating with your suppliers so you actually stay out of trouble. And that's, you know, that's um, really an essential change in the way we've managed supply chain businesses and vendors in the past.
0: You know, one of the big concerns of companies as they enter into supplier contracts is intellectual property protection Mm Rosemary, how do you advise your clients when it comes to protecting their IP, which they are going to have to be sharing to some degree with the supplier in order for that supplier to even make their product?
1: Right. Well, thank, thanks for asking. I'm China, um, Chinese manufacturing is one of my specialty areas. And, of course, as you know, uh, IP is a particular issue in, in China, as well as it is in other parts of the world, but particularly in China where IP theft is fairly common. And so uh, in in some cases, you can attempt to protect yourself through contracting, although contracts are viewed differently in international locations. But more importantly, it might be through a strategy. So a strategy such as building downrev parts in a foreign location or building previously released products, and also manufacturing in multiple locations. So each component part is manufactured in a different location. For example, you might manufacture the circuit boards in one place and the housings in another and the covers in another so that no one particular factory has a complete view of the entire product. So that's in the international arena. In the U.S., it's a little less onerous, and I'm going to let Sarah speak to this with respect to IP protection.
2: So there are obviously contract provisions that everybody uses to ensure that IP is being protected, and most countries are signatories to treaties that protect IP in theory. However, as Rosemary said, enforcement is spotty, so that is a real issue. Another thing that sometimes people will do is they will carefully control the amount of components or subcomponents that a supplier has access to, a supplier or a buyer has access to, and if the supplier or customer claims that there's been a certain scrap rate, the IP holder will demand all of the alleged scrap be returned so that there's not pieces, parts drifting around in the world.
0: So then you've got a contract But then you've got the real world impinging later on. And so there's often the need, first of all, the need to monitor that contract for compliance by both parties. Secondly, the need occasionally to modify that contract. So I'd like to hear tips from both of you, number one, on how you maintain and monitor a contract to make sure that the parties are living up to it, to the language of it. And then secondly, when the inevitable time comes for some aspect of modification, how do you make sure or do you prepare in advance for that eventuality later on so that you can reopen a contract and and change things?
1: From an operational perspective in supply chain, my recommendation is communicate, communicate, communicate. And by that, I don't mean just sending someone a project management update once a week or that sort of thing. I mean, you really need to talk to your suppliers, particularly the critical ones all up and down the supply chain, to make sure that there is a close and effective understanding between the parties with respect to any changes or any redirection that might be going on. And one of the things that I find when I do expert witness work is when 90% of what I'm doing is a contractual problem. And what happens is the communications go sideways. One party thinks one thing and the other party thinks something else. And it's because there are project managers or people involved that are not taking an active role.
0: Sarah, what do you think about that, about the monitoring and then modifying? What are some tips on how to handle both of those uh, actions?
2: Yeah, well, for both, what you have to make sure, first of all, is that everybody at your own company is actually rowing in the same direction. So I would say that there are times – Actually, I would say that this happens very frequently when the engineers working on a project, for instance, have no idea what procurement has agreed to in terms of commercial terms, and engineer activity directly impacts those terms and sometimes contradicts it. And so then what you sometimes have happen is a contract whose terms state one thing in the file cabinet, but engineers whose practices, sometimes for years and years in a row, do something totally different. And at that point, you have a very difficult time discerning what the contract terms is are because courts – will often say a contract, no matter what the terms are, if people are doing something different, that's modified the contract. So one of the things that Rosemary and I talk about in many of our chapters is that it's important for everybody who is involved in the performance of a supply chain contract to be aware at least at some level of what its terms are and for somebody to have a coordinating role to ensure that everybody is complying with what the written terms are and that the written terms still work with what the relationship on the ground actually is. And if you do that, if you come to a time where at some point the contract needs to be modified, you at least have a clean discussion about what it's starting off being and what it's going to become. And then you have to be very clear in your communications about what you want the modification to be. Legal disputes often come up when you have sort of what I'm going to refer to as hanging contract modification proposals, where One party proposes to do something different. They sort of start to do it. The party kind of changes its behavior. Meanwhile, there are discussions on the commercial end going back and forth that don't really resolve the issue, and then somebody becomes dissatisfied. At that point in time, it becomes very difficult to determine whether the contract was modified and what it was modified to be. So you have to make sure that your written communications are crisp and that they're not contradicted by anything that your engineer's or manufacturing functions are doing on the ground.
0: When you have a contract that crosses national boundaries, and the great preponderance of contracts we're talking here uh, about today probably do, how often do you come up with conflicts between U.S. laws and the laws of the other country that the party is, is, is part of, and, and how do you resolve those conflicts?
2: So um, there are rules for this, fortunately, and fortunately, most countries that are involved in commercial activity in the world are party to a a treaty called the Convention on the International Sale of Goods, and what that provides, it's much like, but not totally identical to the UCC in the United States, which governs supply chain contracts, but the rule is for those countries that are signatories, if you have two companies from different countries, and it's, it's almost everybody you can think of. And they don't specify the law in their contract. Fortunately, the international law dictates that the Convention for the International Sale of Goods governs those commercial terms. issue that comes up then is that there are times when the CISG is silent, and there are times when the parties don't necessarily understand that an international treaty provides the law that governs their agreement. So that can be difficult.
0: Rosemary, in your experience, are there any particular countries that tend to raise red flags in this area?
2: You
1: know, international law is so different everywhere. It's obviously easier to deal with Western Europe because they're more alike in their thinking. Asia can be particularly difficult and so forth. I think the more important thing is to get solid advice from someone. You don't want to just jump into some foreign market and try to negotiate a contract and think that it's going to be fine, you really need legal advice. And so, you know, with a a firm like Sarah's that's got offices around the world where they can introduce help, it's really important, especially if it's a big contract. So there's no substitute for having legal advice in the local country.
0: You know, let me ask you both about that. I mean, the, the two of you, your rationale for doing what you do is to advise clients on the ins and outs of these very intricate issues. But what do you also recommend that clients have internally, uh, whether that is an in-house counsel or in-house expertise or someone overseeing the legal aspects that can kind of liaise with the two of you when you serve that outside role? How much internal expertise should companies have in this area?
1: Well, I would say inside of companies, what we're trying to do is raise the awareness of these particular issues to help people stay out of legal fights because their legal battles can be very unpleasant and very costly. So internally, you would expect supply chain people over time to have good, solid experience and to know where there are issues and where they're likely to have problems and potentially some disputes. And that's when they need to raise a hand and say, I need legal help, either from their internal legal staff or uh, external legal help. So it's really a matter of raising the awareness so that people understand when they actually need
2: help. I would say that Rosemary is exactly right. The reason that we wrote the book was to Help companies become aware of the problems that can arise. Once they're aware of those problems, there's, of course, a great deal of freedom within any particular company to determine how they want to make their resources available to them. So for some companies, having a in-house attorney or or in-house department that's very familiar with these issues may be the right answer. For other companies, it may be sufficient to refer supply chain matters and supply chain questions to an outside law firm. And for most major companies, it'll be a combination of
0: both. Well, as you say in the book, there is no fully uniform law that applies to all supply chain disputes, which makes this book more valuable than ever. Uh, It's just full of interesting stuff. We can't possibly touch on the 300 pages beyond just a cursory overview, but I sure want to thank both of you, Rosemary Coates and Sarah Rathke, for talking us to today about this new book, Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. We will link to where you can get the book in the show notes for the episode. Thanks to both of you so much for being with us today. Oh,
2: well, Thank you, Bob.
0: Thank you. I'm just surprised we wrote something that was 300 pages. That was my conversation with Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute and attorney Sarah Rathke talking about how to avoid and defend against supply chain disputes. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter, at scbrain.